Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of Mysterious Circumstances. I am your host, Justin. Today, joining me, I have Tom Colbert, who is the head of the Case Breakers, and he's also an author of the book, The Last Master Outlaw, which is about D.B. Cooper. You can also see him on the documentary that is out on Netflix called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You? And that is the topic of our discussion today. Uh, Tom, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Very excited, Justin. I like weird in-depth cases, and my listeners are huge fans of D.B. Cooper, so they are going to appreciate this quite a bit. So I guess let's get started. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell the listeners a little bit about you. Obviously, I know you, but they don't. Tell us all of what we do at the Case Breakers. Well, my, my deep background is CBS News for almost 10 years on the O&O, the owned and operated station in Los Angeles. From there, I went was recruited by Paramount. And then while at Paramount, I met my beautiful wife, and she had her own personal story. And I uh, decided, because of her smarts with business, we would start our own true story company. And that's what we've been doing all these years under various names. I would add that my uh, other training dealt with a school called California Specialized Training Institute. It's an uh, OES school, uh, which means emergency management. They bring in people that are specialists, and they invited me from CBS News to spend 17 years there. Every other month, they'd fly me up and teach crisis management, hazardous materials, hostage situations, all from the perspective of if you're law enforcement, how can you keep your case private, but at the same time serve the public? And out of that came our first cold case team. We selected some of the best people. My wife and I in 42 years have never been sued. and We're very, very happy about that over the years. And I will tell you that those are the type of people we have selected on the team. These are 40 members now headed by former FBI, about a dozen of them, and they have every known forensic specialty, anthropology, everything you need for a police department is in this team, but they work from their, their rowboats, they work from their lazy boys, and they work from their golf courses when I need them. They'll get on the phone and give me the particular law security issues anything we need. And that is why they are, this 1,500 years of skill sets is unmatched perhaps in the world. I don't know of a team, not only its size, but its brain power. And we're very blessed to have them. Very good group of people. I do know a couple of them. 
um, being Jen and, and George, they mm-hmm. do phenomenal work. That being said, how did you personally get into the D.B. Cooper case and decide <laughs> to write the book, The Last Master Outlaw? Well, we'll start with how I got involved. If you want to understand why I got interested in D.B. Cooper, you have to step back one year, and that was in 1970. I was 12 years old watching the Rose Bowl and with my six brothers and sisters and my psych- psychiatrist father and mom and watching the game, and suddenly my eyes started going on and off, and my head started gonging. And I ran back to the folks' bedroom, fell asleep, woke up the next day, and I felt fine. My dad uh, took me to St. John's Hospital. He said, no, we got to check this out. And I fell into a coma. What had happened was two weeks before, I had four teeth pulled out. And unfortunately, I had no idea, and folks didn't either, obviously, that I was allergic to the anesthetic. And I had uh, fallen asleep. This was 1970. There were no brain scans and no ultrasounds then. They just had to dive in. And on the third dive, they found a hemorrhage, a bleed. And they turned to my parents and said, uh, you need to get things in order. So mom went out and got her black dress. The kids prepared. And a week and a half later, my eyes opened. And there my folks with sags down to their cheeks and dad spoke first and then mom and they said we don't know why you're still here five minutes later dad came back to the bed and he said you need to find out why you're here talk about a little pressure on a 12 year old (laughs) but uh, i had to learn to walk and talk and read all over again at 12. Uh, it took four to five months i barely got into high school uh, in the final year and uh, as a 13 year old but You know, we all grew up, most of us grew up looking at the funny papers. And you can imagine with seven kids around the table, that was passed quickly uh, every morning before school. Uh, When this happened to me, I started looking at dad's paper in his lap. And I'd be saying, I got curious as hell. I just said, why is that war started? Who is that guy that killed someone? Why is this happening? That led to my curiosity. Some people say that maybe the Doubting Thomas And uh, that led me to journalism. It was, that's how I got introduced to D.B. Cooper, because about 10 months later, there on his lap was the hijacking. And I became fascinated by it ever since. That is very interesting. How did the case breakers get involved with D.B. Cooper? I do know that Eric Kleinsmith and Jack Emmendorf had worked on the case for about 10 years. I watched a really good interview with them on YouTube with uh, Dale Julin when they were talking about how they got involved. How did they get involved with the case breakers and then the team decide to pick up this case? Well, it it actually started with me uh, getting a tip from one of my journalists back from the 1980s and 1990s, uh, uh, Rich uh, Kashansky is his name. And Rich was a cameraman and he called me from Las Vegas and said there's he had his own network, of course, in Las Vegas of tipsters, you know, the cocktail girls and the, uh, you know, dice throwers. And uh, he came and called me and said, there is a guy here who has something to get off his chest. And I'm gonna, and I just interviewed him and sat him down. And he claims his former cocaine boss years ago was D.B. Cooper. And that's how we got tipped to it. So at that point, I looked into it for about six to seven months. 
I found out that his D.B. Cooper couldn't possibly be him. He claimed to be from Vietnam. He claimed to have all these medals. Well, we found out through our research, uh, and it was a minimal team, about a half dozen people, that this guy was not in Vietnam. He had no medals. But then we found out he had a partner, and that was Robert W. Rackstraw. So we switched paths, which is very important as a researcher and a journalist. You have to, when, when it's not going your way, you got to look in other directions. You can't be married to it. This was eight months later, I had to switch directions. And I had been grown frustrated with this drug dealer. He was suggesting his Cooper to the point where I finally called the narcs <laughs> at, <laughs> at, in uh, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, at the police department. And I said, look, I got to talk to your narcs who may remember this guy, Dick Briggs, because I can't find any friends of his. I didn't know he was a, you know, a deep a drug dealer at the time. Well, who calls me but a retired cop? And he says, I didn't arrest Dick Briggs. I actually grew up with him in grammar school, and that changed our fortune. He had about a dozen friends, all of them with evidence that Mr. Robert Rackstraw, in fact, happened to be his best friend, seven years best friend, during the prime of D.B. Cooper. They buried the money on the shore. They were involved in various crimes. It was a breakthrough. And again, it's because... You can't be married to one subject. If something sends you in a different direction, I don't have to tell you that, pal. You, you've got to go with it. You do. Absolutely. And speaking of evidence, we have a new documentary coming out, which you are on. Tell us a little bit about the documentary, but let's also talk about some of the evidence that you present for your argument about Robert Rackstraw. You know, the evidence grew and grew. And it's because of this incredible team with their specialties. For example, we had a writing expert from the FBI whose job was to go into court and compare signatures and so forth. He was one that matched up one of Rackstraw's fake identities. Rackstraw had 22 different identities. And one of them was used months before the jump. Norman D. Winter is what he called himself <laughs> from Switzerland. And he was visiting, he was a multimillionaire prince from a very rich family. A lot of naive people up in uh, the Northwest fell for him, about 10 to 15 people we tracked down uh, 30 years later, admitted they were fooled by the, him, admitted they loaned him money. And then of course, he wound up vanishing hours, I would say five to six hours before the actual hijacking. He lost his name, Norman D. Winter, and became Dan Cooper. It was a fascinating cover. We have such details on it. He even sent about four or five letters. These weren't the D.B. Cooper letters that are famous he sent after the jump. These were Norman D. Winter letters <laughs> mailed to some of the college kids, their parents. And what do you know? The handwriting matches the Dan Cooper handwriting. That's pretty interesting. And then we had, obviously, all sorts of forensic information we had in the sense of his location. The two letters of the six D.B. Cooper letters are the key ones to me. We were told that two of the letters actually had a postal mark on them, and they turned out to be dropped in mailboxes from who we found out 
was his parents where he was hiding out. And we're talking Dan Cooper now, D.B. Cooper, was hiding out at his folks' place in the High Sierra right after the jump. And we know that because Donna and I compared the postal markings and where they were were 50 miles from his hideaway, over 500 miles from the hijacking. One of our first FBI guys spoke up, Jack Tremarco, God bless him, he's passed now. He was a 20-year polygraph expert. And when he looked at that evidence, he said, this is a nine out of 10. Now there's an example, our first example, when the FBI didn't react. They said, oh, that's been discounted. No, they never knew about his home. They never knew about his parents' location. In fact, we have FBI memos after we fought for over uh, about a half year to get the FBI memos. We were able to see what J. Edgar Hoover and his favorite agents were doing. And what were they doing? They went right to those mailboxes and they went from house to house. They made the postman count the letters, tell him which ones were regular people, which one didn't live in the neighborhood. You can imagine it was over 2,000 letters. <laughs> and this poor postman had to say, I've never seen that address or that name, but this one I recognize. He had to go through them all. <laughs> That's how desperate and, and focused they were to find who they believed was D.B. Cooper. Well, we found it on the address, and that was because of our team. What do you say about some of the people who might say, well, this is circumstantial evidence and some of the naysayers to the Robert Rackstraw theory? I've been looking just generally at some of the comments that are coming out of people that have seen the documentary and are giving reviews and, and just to see some of their comments are very funny. One of them, they talked about, you know, well, it's group speak. It's group. It's a group consensus. They don't go from, from one point to another and check. Well, I gave you an example earlier, but look, we have testimonials from our team that said that's exactly what we did not do because these are trained, highly efficient, 1,500 years of skill sets, and they know better than just saying, well, if, if you're saying that, I go along with you. You have no idea on our Zooms and our various group calls how heated it gets between <laughs> sometimes FBI guys, sometimes between marshals, sometimes between ballistics experts, where they'll, they'll argue their points, and they always come back together for virtual beers. <laughs> and that's how we decide. It's, we're, we're meticulous, and we make sure that there is no group decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Everybody is double-checking everybody, and it's not like everybody is agreeing all the time, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I can, totally, I can totally agree with that. And we'll talk about some of the other cases the case breakers work on later. But for mm -hmm. as of right now, me and you have talked about um, Jimmy Hoffa and stuff, and I don't, I don't necessarily agree with <laughs> some of the, some of the other theories. And it's like that's good though. I like keeping yeah. an open mind, and and it's like good. I want to see this evidence. I want to talk about it. I would much rather have it that way than be in my mind, 100% sure that I am right and everybody else is wrong. So I think that's really good. I, I would just tell you that there were a couple of members that we felt weren't right for the team. 
And, and that's important for the folks to know. If we found a member who you know, had some uh, credentials, we won't name them, but they turned out not to be the standard that we like, we had to let them go. And that's important to know because this is the team that we hope to model around the country. And we'll talk about later how we plan to do that. But we want people to see this team. And it was their decision, by the way, to tackle the four biggest mysteries in the country because their concept was, look, Tom, we understand that you want to expand around the country and put volunteers like us elsewhere, but we have to prove to the public that we can do that. So why not, why not tackle these? And that's how we started with the team, creating the team was, okay, let's see if we can tackle. Well, frankly, my wife and I truly believe they have cracked all four. And that's, of course, Cooper. That's the Zodiac. That's Hoffa. And there's an incredible development in Atlanta. And once these four are done, then we plan to work in medium sized and small departments around the country on our terrible problem with the unsolved murders. Uh, But that's right now we want to build our creds so that, and again, this is not about, and I've told you this, Justin, when you joined us, that we're not here for fame and fortune. We're here to help the families that sadly are not getting the law enforcement help that they deserve. Yep, and I do remember that, and that's one of the reasons I I wanted to join when um when Jen had brought it up, and I know I know what she's about, and for my listeners, you guys yes. are familiar with Jen Bucholtz. I've had her on the podcast a few times now. She was very adamant about that, and she knows what I'm about, and that's why one of the reasons she asked me, and I was like, yeah, like this sounds great, and she's like, you know, it's it's pro bono, man. Like you're not. You know, this is volunteer work. And I'm like, I, that's fine with me as long as we can do something to try to help. And I think that's what a lot of people don't know about the case breakers. They always see us when we're involved in a big headline on a big case. They don't realize there's 45 other people behind the scenes working all these smaller cases at the same time. Nobody knows about that. And we're all doing it in our spare time and free time. And I don't know. I just appreciate that, to be honest. Yeah, and 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 I will tell you, Jen is fabulous. She's on our board, and she's been uh, a go-to gal for all of us when it comes to information. The public will understand as we get further in this discussion the importance of volunteers, because frankly, there's not enough tax dollars in the world for more cops. And unfortunately, because of the rise of the crime, the cold case teams have vanished. But we're going to talk about you and I are going to talk about how that can be fixed. Yes, yes, we are. Um, So let's jump back into D.B. Cooper and talk about this new documentary that came out. Obviously, we are pre-recording this. By the time the listeners are listening to this tomorrow, that documentary will be released. It is a four-part series on Netflix. Tell us a little bit about the premise and what they were trying to do with this documentary. Well, when we could not get any traction on a second documentary because the first documentary was at History Channel in 2016. And and History Channel was desperate about getting the FBI on board. First documentary having actual FBI members on. Well, what a lot of the audience doesn't know, and we didn't know at the time, is the FBI negotiated for six months to, in essence, disassemble our case 
They worked with History Channel, and what we didn't know is they removed the top 18 pieces of evidence from our documentary. And when it aired, that's when we noticed it. And then, of course, at the news conference the next day, they said we looked at Colbert's team's evidence, over 100 pieces of evidence at that time, and there's nothing new. Well, that's not true. The last day of shooting, which was a few months before it aired, they told us, we are not suddenly not going to work with you on a circumstantial case. Well, 90% of the cases are circumstantial. And we had an agreement with the FBI for the last four years to gather the evidence on Rackstraw. And suddenly, the day we were to turn in the evidence, they slammed the door on us. They said, we're not doing circumstantial. They closed up the file and sent it to Washington. When it aired, they lied on national television, saying that we have seen the evidence. And that's when we began our quest to find another producer. This was 2016. We couldn't get any publicity, national publicity, between 2016 and 2018. And that was because the FBI had a blackout on us. We had four different network packages shot uh, for different times of our investigation. When we filed for the D.B. Cooper file, we sued and we won after six months. That was not publicized nationally. Then we found the escape trail through someone, a former cop and her husband, contacted us after seeing our suit and said, my husband is the last person who was sitting around the table at a small airport when one of the actual people involved in helping Cooper get away told the whole story. We had the whole escape story, no publicity. Then they took us to the burial spot of the parachute because this husband of the cop was told where it was buried, exactly how many steps into a particular forest. The closest house at the time was 10 miles from the, the spot. And what do you know? We dig up the parachute pieces. That is when in 2017, the FBI stopped talking to us. <laughs> <laughs> they got very nervous. Well, we continued. And then we found the codes in the hidden letters because we found one of the NSA code busters from Vietnam, three tours, Rick Sherwood in Indiana. God bless him. Rick still has in his 70s, has 11 codes in his head from the old book, the same book that the Navajos used in World War II to defeat the Japanese on the islands. And he translated those codes. And lo and behold, he not only admit he was in the CIA in code letters, he admits his name and he hijacked the plane by the sixth letter. The FBI knew nothing about these codes. We sent them everything and, of course, no comment. So finally, it was in 2018 when we closed our case and we mentioned I closed it in front of FBI headquarters with the rehearsed comments. The FBI is covering up, stonewalling and flat out lying about the identity of D.B. Cooper because he was a CIA pilot, uh, freelance all over the world. And you should have seen the jaws drop at that news conference. And again, no national coverage. NBC, Fox, the FBI was telling him this guy was, you know, a, a asset. Well, look, my wife and I aren't in this business to reveal assets. We support 
are people working in the shadows to keep us safe, as you do too. But this man had 22 identities, 35 criminal titles, four felonies in five countries. And whenever he came home, he treated California, his home state, as a treasure chest. He would steal and cheat and everything else in three marriages. And anytime the CIA needed him, somehow his uh, he got in trouble for uh, several times for bank robbing through an old word called check kiting, where he'd float checks at different banks. He got caught and served two years. Well, that suddenly was shaved to one and he was back in the CIA again. And they got him out anytime they needed him. He had to get out of jail card. Do you get to present some more of this evidence in this uh, Netflix documentary? We've been told that the lion's share of the documentary is our team, which is a compliment to them. And the Netflix folks decided because they were so credible, they put all of us, including myself, into libraries and and think tanks. And most of us, I think all of us were in suits. And that is how they treated us. So we're very happy with that. We are sharing, and let me step back a minute. We'd found out that Netflix, through the reviews, is including some of the so-called loving Cooperites and their dead, th- uh, dead suspect theories in the documentary. And I understand this is commerce. It's not history, but it's commerce. And Netflix looked at this documentary and the public is seeing, for the first time, around the globe, the story of Cooper. It's always been an Americana story. And any country that has English-speaking folk got to see it. But the rest of the world, for the first time, is seeing it. So Netflix's argument, and I can understand it, their argument was, we want to include all the other suspects, all the other theories, and let the audience around the globe make a decision. That is the program they have chosen. We, the team, from now on, have decided to put a clause in our contracts that says we have consulting rights to when we find game-changing evidence on our cases, we have the right to consult with the producer on holding a news conference. And you can understand, Justin, because of the first doc I just spoke of, where other things were chosen, we are not going to let our future documentaries be manipulated, the facts, or left out. Uh, It's important the public, and we also don't want them stolen by people that see the story and start their own doc. So we have to be very cautious on the information we release, but that is what we're going to do because, and again, no criticism to Fullwell 73, the company. It was a wonderful thing working with them. Uh, Netflix made the ultimate choice because they were paying the freight, but that is a documentary mystery we do news documentary. With the first documentary and the problems that were with it, is that what made you want to write the, the book, The Last Master Outlaw? Or was, was it a point where you just had so much information you just had to get it out on paper, out to the world? Well, I blame the book for the on the FBI <laughs> because, the, because they were my editors and they are tough as hell. And they said, you have to do a, a summary. We call it the investigative report 
the IR is what the FBI calls it. We're, we're calling yours the investigative chronicle, the IC. And you have to have a timeline. And when you do the bullets of the timeline of your suspect and sources and so forth, you have to put right below the bullets your sources of information. And that means everything. The initials of the people that told you something. The documents, the page numbers, and the paragraphs. I mean, it was a huge job. But being a senior researcher at CBS News, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) And it uh, it made it credible. And we realized quickly, within months, after learning about Rackstraw, we said we have to prepare this IC for a book because it's going to be history. If the public wants the book on D.B. Cooper, I'm not biased. I'm speaking for the team. I'm just the ringmaster. <laughs> they are the brains. And, and they said, this is the bonafide book, so you have to put endnotes in the back. Of the 350 pages, 50 pages are the endnotes that were the timeline in our investigative chronicle. We had a couple of literary attorneys who specialize in bias and suits and everything else. They looked at it. Two of them looked at it and said, this is him. (laughs) This is absolutely him. And Rackstraw himself went online and we have the saved emails from him now that he's passed on. Six times he pleaded with attorneys to take me on. Not one of them would do it when they read the book. And that's the ultimate compliment to the team. And I would tell the audience, this is the only book that has not only one, but three awards for true crime. And it has the footnotes for proof. And it has the highest number of Amazon ratings, 157 five-star reviews on this. And let me tell you, it's not because somebody's making up lies. This is the story that they should see. Going back to this Netflix documentary, what is one major piece of information that you think most people who know about D.B. Cooper might be surprised by? Just a bombshell that you provided. Well, I think one of the most important bombshell is everybody talks about Cooper as, oh, a fun-loving uh, you know, outlaw who is like Jesse James and now is legend. You know, I could agree with that, except for the fact that he was a criminal on ground. And worst of all, he wound up killing the man that hid him afterwards, his own stepdad. He shot him twice in the head and buried him in his underwear. And that put chills down all of our backs when we read that and heard about it through information. The saddest part is his stepdad was in the Japanese islands, held prisoner in a pile of dead bodies, hiding. And his best friend pulled him out of that pile of bodies. You imagine him at the edge of his grave as his son pushed him, shot him and pushed him into the ground. A hero like that. That's what angered me to the core and the treatment of his stepfather. So, no, I don't consider him a folk hero, and I hope the readers, when they see that part in the book, understand that it's a lot more complicated than a hero.
Yeah, you are definitely right about that. There's a lot of underlying scenarios, and that's why I highly suggest if you are into D.B. Cooper, go get that book that Tom has written. Like I said, it's The Last Master Outlaw. And then, of course, we have the Netflix documentary coming out, four-part series. Are you eager to see it? You think you're gonna, you know, or you think you're gonna be edgy about what they might edit out or keep in or anything like that? I'm always looking out for folks that are involved and make sure they get their credit and so forth. And one thing I want to mention right now, because we just spoke of it, and that is the book. Understand this book is what it is, is because of Tom Solacy. Tom Solacy is an incredible writer, a script writer and teacher at Loyola Marymount. And if it wasn't for him, the narrative wouldn't be there. I would have just had bullets. <laughs> he is an incredible writer. I only wrote two or three of my own personal chapters, but Tom is a phenomenal writer. And that's why the book is getting accolades and has the only awards. Have you been able to preview the four-part series or are you just going to be watching it for the first time like everybody else? Well, that's I generally do that. I watch something that I'm in and I, I never watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, why why do you need to? You lived it. So so yeah, I'll watch it and I'll probably take some good notes because I always do as a researcher. But you know, we're thrilled to have it coming out. Uh it took all these years and we had to wait for his passing before we could find a brave outlet that would do it because the FBI kept canceling all our our publicity chances. I mean, not one AP wire uh, story, not one national paper of record, not one TV package. And so when he passed, I realized we got to get this tip to London. And that was the smartest thing we did because two print tabloids put the story out, went and to this day, that was the game changer because a British producer took this on. So we were very, very lucky to get that publicity and have a way to defeat the blackout. That sounds uh, pretty great. Let's go back to the case breakers and let's let's talk about yeah. what you foresee in the future of the case breakers outside of those four big cases. And a lot of people do not realize that they can get involved with all of this and get more involved with the smaller cases that they might not know about. So let's talk about the future of the case breakers and how the public can also get involved with this. Well, it's important for them to know that the idea of expanding the team was my wife. And it's because my wife was a crime victim and her mother was murdered. And she, with her brother and sister, tracked down the killer. The hardest part for Donna is that they don't have a place to go visit her because the, the SOB buried her at sea. And that has propelled Donna ever since. And when we started the team, and, and look, I had a great time doing true story movies, The Vow with Rachel McAdams and uh, Sybil Shepherd in The Baby Brokers. We had about a half dozen to a dozen movies that came out. But Donna was the one that said, we really got to focus on true stories that are going to help people, especially the missing. And so we transitioned into that. It was only recently the FBI put out some uh, stats that, of course, are not being publicized on the general media. And there are three statistics the public should know. Quarter million, 6,000, and 5%. There are now over a quarter million unsolved murders affecting families around our country. It grows by 6,000 a year. 
And sadly, only 5% of departments have staffs of cold case teams. They don't have them anymore because they're racing from crime to crime. My dad, the psychiatrist, said about 20 years ago, uh, before he had died, he had said that, you know, there's a lot of moms and dads, but not very many parents anymore. Yeah. And all we have to do is look at the street. Now, I don't blame the parents for all of it, of course, because to put a roof over your head, you need two workers most of the time. And where are the kids going? They're going to the streets. And that is what's happening in our country, and it has to stop. I said earlier, there's not enough tax dollars in the world for more cops. That's when we realized my students, 17 years of students, thousands of them at CSTI, California Specialized Training Institute, I realized it was the place I could get this started and find the best. And the best are on the team, and those best have invited other bests, and God bless the ones we've had a half dozen die, and we replace them with other wonderful volunteers. We see the solution to the unsolved murders, to the crime. We see the role models in these men and women we have found. We are expanding them. Our goal is to expand them with these documentaries coming. The whole reason for the documentaries is to show that we can do this. And we are going to start knocking on the doors of houses that used to get knocks a year later when a child was missing. Or when you call the FBI or local police and they either don't have time or, or don't care, mostly they don't have time to return calls. We are the ones that are gonna return calls. We're the ones that are gonna knock on doors. We're the ones who are gonna sit down on anniversaries and talk about new, new ideas on finding that victim. This is how the teams, these volunteers, they're, they are eager. We've had dozens and dozens of former law enforcement, uh, military, forensics, uh, rangers. I mean, we've had everybody that say, I wanna find a way, okay, I have a little arthritis or I don't, I can't climb the fence anymore. But you know what? The brains are sharp and that's what we've learned. And that's how we're going to turn it around. But we need the public's help. You know, if you know a good cop and the key word is the capital G, a good cop that you think should be on this team when he retires, when you know people that have equipment that could help us in the field, what, do you know uh, forensic people mental health people that would like to be involved, not necessarily carrying a gun or digging up a body, but offering their expertise. That's what we're looking for to join these teams. And of course, these are volunteers, but they have expenses. Donna and I have been paying it for 10 years. We can't do state to state. It's got to be the public, the government, corporations, uh, dot commerce, people that look and say, where can I send this tax deduction? This is how you fund them from door to door. This is how hotels are paid for, flights. This is how the forensics, where there are real costs involved. Now, we have wonderful labs. We have wonderful universities, more than a dozen now, working with us on forensics, on ballistics. Uh, they're all doing it for free. But when there are costs of particular parts of the process, we obviously have to put money out. And that's where the public can help. We want to turn this country around, folks. And I hate to tell you, there is no other solution to the crime and the uh, unsolved crisis that we have in this country. I didn't grow up 
Justin didn't grow up, and I'm sure many of you did not grow up in a country where you can't walk down the street, or if your child's missing, you can get him immediately with the help of law enforcement. Those days are gone. This is the only solution, minute men and women, that need to step up and help us. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And could you direct people to the case breakers and where they can look into this stuff and maybe even submit information or even try to volunteer to help? Thanks, Justin. Uh, The spot is very simple. There are three words, the case breakers, and it's a nonprofit. So it has the ending of .org, thecasebreakers.org. You go there, you're going to see how you can submit cases. If you know a good cop, uh, a forensic expert who's really looking for something to do after leaving a university, you can submit them there. We've had dozens and dozens of cases come in. We're looking for the ones that we can work. We will be honest on the cases. We will sometimes ask you for some more information, but it's all up on the casebreakers.org. You can see the cases that we've been covering. You can see some of and and understand we are not we're not in this for publicity and fame and fortune. As I said earlier, this is about having a place where you can go and submit ideas, submit categories of information that we don't have, find uh, missing children. This is what our place is for. And we have a lot of young people getting involved. And that's the other goal of this. It's not only to expand the team, solve cold cases. We want to get young people excited about public service because it is exciting and it is not day to day. It is something new every day, just like me in the newsroom, because I remember all the law enforcement coming into our departments, visiting, and I remember them, and they wound up tipping me as the senior researcher to these incredible jobs and these incredible people. And that's how we were able to create this team. So God bless these people in and out of uniform, with or without badges. They're there for us. And I want to add one last thing, because it's important to note. We have a unit developing, and Justin knows about this, a wonderful man named Bill Proctor. Bill is a former anchor and cop in law enforcement. Bill is creating a unit to go after the wrongly jailed. And after he identifies them, he goes after the ones that put him there. It's a fabulous unit, needed And yes, we want those cases too. Absolutely. And Tom Colbert, I cannot thank you enough for joining me here and going a little bit more in depth on some of the D.B. Cooper evidence, the documentary, your book, and also helping people understand what we do here at the Case Breakers. There's a lot of misconceptions and and, uh, false information about what we do. So I appreciate you coming on and explaining a lot of that to people as well. You're welcome, Justin. And I do want to say, I want to tell the public, you don't know how lucky you are to have a lighthouse like Justin. There are a lot of people that have other motives. There are a lot of people that will cut you off, but this is a man with patience. He is a great person for the team, but he is a a person to reach out to. So if you find people that need someone to talk to, I'm sure Justin would take their email. I really, really appreciate that, Tom. And, you know, I try 
my best for sure, as we all do, and especially when it comes to unsolved crimes or taking information and just trying to fight the good fight, you know, make a difference. Onward. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. God bless. Thank you, and I will talk to you later, Tom. Take care. Bye.